This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 13 The Unity of the Divine Essence in Three Persons, Taught in Scripture from the Foundation of the World. Sections 11. Passages from the New Testament in which the Son is acknowledged to be the Lord of hosts, the Judge of the world, the God of glory, the Creator of the world, the Lord of angels, the King of the church, the eternal Logos, God blessed forever, God manifest in the flesh, the equal of God, the true God and eternal life, the Lord and God of all believers, therefore the eternal God. 12. Christ the Creator, Preserver, Redeemer, and Searcher of Hearts, therefore the Eternal God. 13. Christ, by His own inherent power, wrought miracles and bestowed the power of working them on others. Out of the Eternal God there is no salvation, no righteousness, no life. All these are in Christ. Christ, consequently, is the Eternal God, He in whom we believe and hope, to whom we pray, whom the church acknowledges as the Savior of the faithful, whom to know is life eternal, in whom the pious glory, and through whom eternal blessings are communicated, is the eternal God. All these Christ is, and therefore he is God. 14. The divinity of the Spirit proved. 1. He is the creator and preserver of the world. 2. He sent the prophets. 3. He quickeneth all things. 4. He is everywhere present. 5. He renews the saints and fits them for eternal life. And 6. All the offices of deity belong to him. 15. The divinity of the Son continued. 7. He is called God. 8. Blasphemy against him is not forgiven. Section 11. The New Testament teems with innumerable passages, and our object must therefore be the selection of a few, rather than an accumulation of the whole. But though the apostles spoke of him after his appearance in the flesh as mediator, every passage which I adduce will be sufficient to prove his eternal Godhead. And the first thing deserving of special observation is that predictions concerning the eternal God are applied to Christ, as either already fulfilled in him or to be fulfilled at some future period. Isaiah prophesies that the Lord of hosts shall be for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense in Isaiah 8.14. Paul asserts that this prophecy was fulfilled in Christ, Romans 9.33, and therefore declares that Christ is that Lord of hosts. In like manner, he says in another passage, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Since in Isaiah God predicts this of himself, Isaiah 45.23, and Christ exhibits the reality fulfilled in himself, it follows that he is the very God, whose glory cannot be given to another. It is clear also that the passage from the Psalms, Psalm 68.19, which he quotes in the Epistle to the Ephesians, is applicable only to God. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. Ephesians 4.8 
understanding that such an ascension was shadowed forth when the Lord exerted his power and gained a glorious victory over heathen nations, he intimates that what was thus shadowed was more fully manifested in Christ. So John testifies that it was the glory of the Son which was revealed to Isaiah in a vision, John 12.41 and Isaiah 6.4. Though Isaiah himself expressly says that what he saw was the majesty of God. Again, there can be no doubt that those qualities which, in the epistle to the Hebrews, are applied to the Son, are the brightest attributes of God. Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, etc. And let all the angels of God worship him, Hebrews 1, 10, and 6. And yet he does not pervert the passages in thus applying them to Christ, since Christ alone performed the things which these passages celebrate. It was he who arose and pitied Zion, he who claimed for himself dominion over all nations and islands. And why should John have hesitated to ascribe the majesty of God to Christ after saying in his preface that the word was God? John 1.14 Why should Paul have feared to place Christ on the judgment seat of God? 2 Corinthians 5.10 After he had so openly proclaimed his divinity when he said that he was God over all, blessed forever. And to show how consistent he is in this respect, he elsewhere says that God was manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 If he is God, blessed forever, he therefore it is to whom alone, as Paul affirms in another place, all glory and honor is due. Paul does not disguise this, but openly exclaims that being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Philippians 2.6 And lest the wicked should glamour and say that he was a kind of spurious God, John goes farther and affirms, This is the true God and eternal life. Though it ought to be enough for us that he is called God, especially by a witness who distinctly testifies that we have no more gods than one, Paul says, Though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God. 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6. When we hear from the same lips that God was manifest in the flesh, that God purchased the church with his own blood, why do we dream of any second God, to whom he makes not the least allusion? And there is no room to doubt that all the godly entertained the same view. Thomas, by addressing him as his Lord and God, certainly professes that he was the only God whom he had ever adored. John twenty twenty eight. Section 12 the divinity of Christ, if judged by the works which are ascribed to him in Scripture, becomes still more evident. When he said of himself, My father worketh hitherto, and I work, the Jews, though most dull in regard to his other sayings, perceived that he was laying claim to divine power. And therefore, as John relates, John 5.17, they sought the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. What then will be our stupidity if we do not perceive from the same passage that his divinity is plainly instructed? To govern the world by his power and providence and regulate all things by an energy inherent in himself, this an apostle ascribes to him, Hebrews 1.3, surely belongs to none but the Creator. 
nor does he merely share the government of the world with the Father, but also each of the other offices, which cannot be communicated to creatures. The Lord proclaims by his prophets, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. Isaiah 43.25 When, in accordance with this declaration, the Jews thought that injustice was done to God when Christ forgave sins, he not only asserted in distinct terms that this power belonged to him, but also proved it by a miracle. Matthew 9.6 We thus see that he possessed in himself not the ministry of forgiving sins, but the inherent power which the Lord declares he will not give to another. What? Is it not the province of God alone to penetrate and interrogate the secret thoughts of the heart? But Christ also had this power, and therefore we infer that Christ is God. Section 13 How clearly and transparently does this appear in his miracles? I admit that similar and equal miracles were performed by the prophets and apostles, but there is this very essential difference that they dispensed the gifts of God as his ministers, whereas he exerted his own inherent might. Sometimes, indeed, he used prayer, that he might ascribe glory to the Father, but we see that for the most part of his own proper power is displayed. And how should not he be the true author of miracles, who, of his own authority, commissions others to perform them? For the evangelist relates that he gave power to the apostles to cast out devils cure the lepers, raise the dead, etc. And they, by the mode in which they performed this ministry, showed plainly that their whole power was derived from Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, says Peter, Acts 3.6, rise up and walk. It is not surprising, then, that Christ appealed to his miracles in order to subdue the unbelief of the Jews, inasmuch as these were performed by his own energy, and therefore bore the most ample testimony to his divinity. Again, if out of God there is no salvation, no righteousness, no life, Christ, having all these in himself, is certainly God. Let no one object that life or salvation is transfused into him by God. For it is said not that he received, but that he himself is salvation. And if there is none good but God, how could a mere man be pure? How could he be, I say not good and just, but goodness and justice? Then what shall we say to the testimony of the evangelist, that from the very beginning of the creation in him was life, and this life was the light of men? Trusting to such proofs, we can boldly put our hope and faith in him, though we know it is blasphemous impiety to confide in any creature. Ye believe in God, says he, believe also in me, John 14.1. And so Paul, in Romans 10.11 and 15.12, interprets two passages of Isaiah, whose believeth in him shall not be confounded, Isaiah 28.16, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek, Isaiah 11.10. But why adduce more passages of Scripture on this head, when we so often meet with the expression, he that believeth in me has eternal life. Again, the prayer of faith is addressed to him, prayer which specially belongs to the divine majesty, if anything so belongs. For the prophet Joel says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord Jehovah shall be delivered. 
Joel 2.32. And another says, The name of the Lord, Jehovah, is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Proverbs 18.10. But the name of Christ is invoked for salvation, and therefore it follows that he is Jehovah. Moreover, we have an example of invocation in Stephen when he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And thereafter in the whole church, when Ananias says in the same book, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Acts 9, 13, and 14. And to make it more clearly understood that in Christ dwelt the whole fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Apostle declares that the only doctrine which he professed to the Corinthians, the only doctrine which he taught, was the knowledge of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. Consider what kind of thing it is, and how great that the name of the Son alone is preached to us, though God command us to glory only in the knowledge of himself, Jeremiah 9, 24. Who will dare to maintain that he, whom to know forms our only ground of glorying, is a mere creature? To this we may add that the salutations prefixed to the epistles of Paul pray for the same blessings from the Son as from the Father. By this we are taught not only that the blessings which our Heavenly Father bestows come to us through His intercession, but that by a partnership and power, the Son Himself is their author. This practical knowledge is doubtless surer and more solid than any idle speculation, for the pious soul has the best view of God, and may almost be said to handle him when it feels that it is quickened, enlightened, saved, justified, and sanctified by him. Section 14 In asserting the divinity of the Spirit, the proof must be derived from the same sources. And it is by no means an obscure testimony which Moses bears in the history of the creation when he says that the Spirit of God was expanded over the abyss or shapeless matter. For it shows not only that the beauty which the world displays is maintained by the invigorating power of the Spirit, but that even before this beauty existed, the Spirit was at work cherishing the confused mass. Again, no cavils can explain away the force of what Isaiah says, and now the Lord God and his Spirit has sent me, Isaiah 48.16 thus ascribing a share in the sovereign power of sending the prophets to the Holy Spirit. Calvin in Acts 20.28 In this his divine majesty is clear. But as I observed, the best proof to us is our familiar experience, for nothing can be more alien from a creature than the office which the scriptures ascribe to him, and which the pious actually feel him discharging, his being diffused over all space, sustaining invigorating and quickening all things, both in heaven and on the earth. The mere fact of his not being circumcised by any limits raises him above the rank of creatures, while his transfusing vigor into all things, breathing into them being, life, and motion is plainly divine. Again, if regeneration to incorruptible life is higher and much more excellent than any present quickening, what must be thought of him by whose energy it is produced? Now many passages of Scripture show that he is the author of regeneration, not by a borrowed, but by an intrinsic energy. And not only so, but that he is also the author of future immortality. In short, all the peculiar attributes of the Godhead are ascribed to him in the same way as to the Son, 
He searches the deep things of God's and has no counselor among the creatures. He bestows wisdom and the faculty of speech, though God declares to Moses, Exodus 4.11, that this is his own peculiar province. In like manner, by means of him we become partakers of the divine nature, so as in a manner to feel his quickening energy within us. Our justification is his work. From him is power, sanctification, truth, grace, and every good thought. Since it is from the Spirit alone that all good gifts proceed, particular attention is due to Paul's expression, that though there are diversities of gifts, all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.11 He being not only the beginning or origin, but also the author. As is even more clearly expressed immediately after in these words, dividing to every man severally as he will. For were he not something subsisting in God, will and arbitrary disposal would never be ascribed to him. Most clearly, therefore, does Paul ascribe divine power to the Spirit and demonstrate that he dwells hypostatically in God. Section 15 Nor does the Scripture, in speaking of him, withhold the name of God. Paul infers that we are the temple of God, from the fact that the Spirit of God dwelleth in us, 1 Corinthians 3.16, 6.19, and 2 Corinthians 6.16. Now it ought not to be slightly overlooked that all the promises which God makes of choosing us to himself as a temple receive their only fulfillment by his Spirit dwelling in us. Surely, as it is admirably expressed by Augustine, were we ordered to make a temple of wood and stone to the Spirit, inasmuch as such worship is due to God alone, it would be a clear proof of the Spirit's divinity. How much clearer a proof in that we are not to make a temple to him, but to be ourselves that temple. And the Apostle says at one time that we are the temple of God, and at another time in the same sense that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter, when he rebuked Ananias for having lied to the Holy Spirit, said that he had not lied unto men, but unto God. And when Isaiah had introduced the Lord of hosts as speaking, Paul says it was the Holy Spirit that spoke, Acts 28, 25, and 26. Nay, words uniformly said by the prophets to have been spoken by the Lord of hosts are by Christ and his apostles ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Hence it follows that the Spirit is the true Jehovah who dictated the prophecies. Again, when God complains that he was provoked to anger by the stubbornness of the people in place of him, Isaiah says that his Holy Spirit was grieved, Isaiah 63.10. Lastly, while blasphemy against the Spirit is not forgiven, either in the present life or that which is to come, whereas he who has blasphemed against the Son may obtain pardon, that majesty must certainly be divine, which it is an expiable crime to offend or impair. I designedly omit several passages which the ancient fathers adduced. They thought it plausible to quote from David, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath or spirit of his mouth. Psalm 33, 6 in order to prove that the world was not less the work of the Holy Spirit than of the Son. But seeing it is usual in the Psalms to repeat the same thing twice, and in Isaiah the spirit or breath of the mouth is equivalent to word, that proof was weak. 
and accordingly my wish has been to advert briefly to those proofs on which pious minds may securely rest. Mm-hmm. 